Hello, I'm Mark, and this is the Fast Track Impact podcast for researchers who want to be more productive and achieve real-world impacts from their research. This week, I'm going to build on the last two weeks where we looked at motivations and labels and take us a step deeper. I I promise I will do some more impact-based stuff very soon, but uh, of course, great impact comes from great research. And we are, of course, researchers generating the kind of impacts that come from, in theory, robust, original and significant research. And it is those final two criteria that we are often judged on that we often find the hardest. They're also the most subjective, of course, as well. But how do you come up with new ideas that are genuinely original and absolutely significant? That paradigm-shifting idea, piece of evidence, whatever it is that shifts things forward in a radically new direction that everyone else then builds on and the entire discipline now careers off in a new direction. And that's our holy grail. We're all searching for, for that, that one point in our career. And one, one will do me. I'll, I'll be happy with that. Um, but of course, yeah, we, can do, we can do more than one genuinely original and significant um, paper, book, contribution in our careers. And this week I want to think about um, an approach, a framework that has been derived from the work of Keats, the famous poet. Um, and this might seem like a strange place uh, for us to learn as, uh, as researchers about this process, but ultimately as a poet, Keats was fundamentally creative. And, uh, and I think for me, that is the well from which we need to draw if we want to come up with genuinely original ideas which are significant enough to transform our discipline. And he has these three ideas, and these were never laid out as a framework formally by him. These have been extracted from uh, his letters primarily as he talks to his correspondents about his process, about how he uh, himself generates new ideas. And uh, there, there are three elements. So the first is the idea of becoming more comfortable with uncertainty uh, and what he calls negative capability, which I'll explain. Second step then is unlearning. And the third set, uh, set, uh, step even uh, is, is about moving beyond the certainty of identity. And I'll use, um, I'll go draw some from some of his, his letters actually to describe this metaphor of, uh, of rooms and light that he uses to describe this. And I found it inspiring, so I hope that you're going to find this inspiring. I'm going to try and illustrate this with examples of actual research, um, either from my own research or colleagues I've worked with, to try and make this real, uh, rather than just using uh, famous examples of people that made paradigm shifts that have gone down in history that feel a little, little unachievable for the average person. So... The first of these three ideas is becoming comfortable with uncertainty and increasingly reveling in that place of not being sure, not entirely knowing. A uh, uh, quick edit out of a sneeze there. The beauty of podcasting, uh, you don't have to get subject, <laughs> subjected to my sneeze there. Uh, so th- this idea that I'm not just there in uncertainty, but I actually begin to be attracted to uncertainty, to not knowing. Uh, And for me, this is fundamental because we have to go beyond the cutting edge. 
uh, if we want to make a genuinely original and significant contribution. And of course, what is beyond the cutting edge is a place of unknowing, of uncertainty, of, of darkness, effectively. And if we shy away from that, if we want to always feel like we're on solid ground and that we are just on that cutting edge, then what we'll ever do is incremental work on the cutting edge and we'll never make that paradigm shifting advance. So this is the, the idea of, uh, of negative capability. Uh, it's uh, not negative in terms of moaning and complaining. It's not negative in terms of an absence. It's about a spaciousness of mind rather than an empty mind that realizes that there could be wild new possibilities out there that nobody has ever thought before, that nobody has ever discovered before. Keats, as it turns out, um, reading about him, I didn't know he was uh, actually a chemist by training. Uh, and so the, the people writing about him have interpreted this idea of negative um, capability as, um, as something that kind of comes from this idea of negative charge that you might find in chemistry uh, as opposed to positive charge. Uh, so Stephen Coote, writing about, um, about Keats here, I quote here, says, Negativity is not a rejection, a minus, or an absence, but rather a sympathetic, receptive intensity. And what I'd like to do is, is to, to draw an image for you, a metaphor for what this is like. And for me, uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cliff edge. So draw this, this picture in your mind of, of a cliff edge. And you've got all these researchers who are fighting their way through bam brambles and nettles and bushes and various obstacles to try and make their way onto that cutting edge. And some of them are getting lost in the forest and they're kind of going around in circles in places that people have been trapped multiple times before and they're not on that cutting edge. But then there are a few people who have reached that cutting edge and they are standing on the cliff edge. This is the limit of known knowledge in their discipline. Uh, beyond it is this expansive blackness. That is the unknown, but they are on that cutting edge. And gradually, over time, uh, more and more people join them on that cutting edge. Uh, and typically, they join them in areas that are currently unoccupied. Ah, ah, okay, so there's an interesting new part of this cutting edge right over here with some interesting plants growing on it. And, and here I am now. I'm going to sit on this part of the, of, the, uh, of, the, of the cliff, my legs dangling over the edge, and have a look at everything that I can see around me in the grass. Um, uh, here, uh, on either side of me. And what I would describe this as is the, the process of us uh, in our training, trying to get to the place where we fully understand what has been written that is perceived to be on that cutting edge. And now uh, all of us who are on that cutting edge looking for gaps. Uh, and as we read, as we understand and we talk to each other on that cutting edge of the cliff edge, we see, yeah, so we're not quite sure about this. And yeah, there's a patch over there that nobody's really ever been visited before. Let's have a look at that. And we spend our whole time coming up with what I would describe as fairly incremental gap-filling advances that don't really change the cutting edge. And that's fine. There's great value in that. And let's do that. Let's explore that. But who is going to be that one person who jumps off the cliff edge and discovers something completely, completely new? 
And so that is what I suggest that uh, that any of us who want to make that genuinely original, significant contribution need to do. We need to jump off the cliff into that expansive darkness that lies beyond. And at this point, my my cliff uh, cliff edge analogy maybe begins to break down because I'm, I'm not going to leave you free falling um, through through the air to discover that uh, what you might discover then ends up uh, smashing you to bits. <laughs> uh, I'm going to suggest that actually you step off this cliff edge and you discover that actually you don't fall. Uh, in fact, something is holding you there. And so you're walking out and as for the further you go out, the more enveloped in darkness you become. And of course, there is this incredible urge to step back onto the cliff edge uh, because there is certainty, there is light. That is where everyone else is, in fact. And in fact, the further out you go, the more the shouts and cries of your colleagues will begin to reach you. Hey, what are you doing? What? Are you? Come back! And that's dangerous. And oh, that's really stupid. And oh, can you believe... Yeah, you can just imagine, yeah? <laughs> and actually people who do take those steps into the unknown of their discipline, uh, who sometimes, sometimes not, actually make that paradigm shift are often um, heaped with scorn by their colleagues as they take those those first steps. Um, uh, now, I've I've not, I would uh, uh, hasten to add very quickly, I've never, <laughs> never changed my discipline. I've never made that paradigm shift, uh, which is why I'm thinking about this, because we, we all need to think uh, harder and in new ways about this if we're going to make that kind of contribution. Um, but uh, I think the closest example I've got of something like this is um, some of the peatland research that, that I was doing. And we wanted to, to understand, um, might there be a market for carbon based on restoring peat bogs? Who knows? Uh, what would it be worth? Would it be worth enough to justify the cost of restoring these habitats? And everyone from my discipline told me, you have to research this and do some theoretical economics. We need to do willingness to, willingness to pay surveys. That's how you work out how much people would be willing to pay. And before you do that, before you actually create a market, you need to have that evidence. And uh, there were various people trying to do things like that, and we were kind of going around in circles, and for me, it was still theoretical. Yeah, you might say to a researcher, I'd be willing to pay this, but actually, would you be willing to pay it? And actually, the people who are willing to pay are actually companies, and each company will perceive this in a radically different way. And I'm not convinced that any of that kind of evidence will tell us anything meaningful in the real world. So actually, why don't we just jump off this cliff edge and create a market? and see what happens. <laughs> and the market might fail. The market might uh, explode in flames because we've done something that, that yeah, everyone thinks is unethical, um, that is unviable, maybe we lose lots of money. Who knows what might happen here? This is a fairly scary step. But actually, if you want to know how much willing someone is willing to pay for something in reality, your only actual answer that, for me, holds any water is, I created a market, and I put it up for sale, and people bought it. And this is how much they were willing to pay pay for in reality. Uh, and of course, you get impact at the same time. 
Uh, and so the only paper that I've got that has been considered that it might get four star, um, which in theory uh, might be paradigm shifting. I mean, re- in reality, it's not. Um, but uh, the only paper that I've got that has been ranked as potential four star so far for our internal reviews is my paper about uh, the launch of that regional carbon market and how we did that and the evidence that, that we gathered from that process. Now, the second of these three steps that Keats suggests uh, is more challenging. And they get more and more challenging as we go through. And it's this idea of unlearning. So I've now already jumped off the cliff edge and I have gained this sense of negative capability now where I'm comfortable, I'm capable uh, in working with uncertainty and being in this place of, of, of negativity or, or, or darkness. Um, I don't have to constantly seek the positive that will match my negative or uh, I, I, can, I, I can deal with that, that energy uh, and I can... Uh, yeah, I'm there. I'm in that blank space. Now I'm looking back towards that cliff edge where everyone is searching for the, the new gap that they can fill. And I ask myself whether actually I have I, I and they had made assumptions that may or may not be valid. Is that indeed the cutting edge or not? And what are the assumptions that might lead me to think again about whether or not that is indeed the correct place to be? And of course, this is going to lead to significantly more scorn um, and negative attention from your colleagues who you may now be undermining. Um, and, and essentially here, we we build... Uh, our research, that cutting edge, on the shoulders of giants. And we quite often just accept as norm all of the things that we have built upon. So we've got this cliff edge now, and there is uh, these meters and meters of earth underneath that uh, cliff edge. And actually, very few of the people on that cliff edge have gone back and read, let alone critically thought about some of the assumptions that uh, are in the work of the of the people that they have built that cutting edge upon. And I'm now looking at that, and from this perspective now, uh, from this side of the cliff edge, I can see that, um, yeah, there's a, there's a fairly big gaping hole right over there. It kind of looks like a bit of a, a, a cave. Um, and, uh, and actually, the people who are standing on that part of the cliff, I can see it's looking pretty dangerous. Um, it could, in fact, collapse. And over there, there's a, a really quite frightening overhang. <laughs> and um, yeah, there's like four or five people standing on that overhang, and there's nothing beneath that whatsoever. And from this perspective now of having stepped off the cliff edge, no longer being caught in the minutiae of what is the gap uh, right over here in this little patch of grassland, I begin to get the bigger perspective that uh, that might now undermine that cliff um, edge, that cutting edge altogether, and enable us to rebuild something quite different in a quite different place, in a quite different um, direction. 
So we're looking at assumptions, we're looking at different disciplinary or theoretical perspectives, we're engaging with people we wouldn't normally engage that are beyond our current sphere. We're not just interacting with people on our cutting edge. We're talking to people from different disciplines who view the world in different ways, who view knowledge in different ways, to see if that now changes the way we see what was our cutting edge from this new perspective. Now, the example I'm going to give you here is from one of my colleagues, Jasper Cantor at the University of York, who uh, re-evaluated the assumptions of traditional neoclassical economics um, and environmental economics in particular that assumes, uh, and still assumes, because this is uh, not agreed with by everyone, that um, if you want to understand how a group of people value the natural environment, or value anything for that matter, then I go and I ask each individual um, how much would you place, how much value would you place on this. And now once I've asked all of the individuals, or done some kind of a sample, I can aggregate that to a total figure, and now this is how much the population might be willing to pay, or how much an asset might be worth, especially when you're looking at non-market kind of things. This, these are methods that we use and upon which policies are built around the world. Um, this, is, this is fairly core assumptions to economics, and it's a pretty valid assumption, you would think. And what Jasper did was he came along and he suggested, well, what we're trying to do here is understand the shared values of a group. So actually what happens when you get that group of people together and you ask them, sitting in a room, how do you as a group value this? And as a group, what value would you place on this? And what he did was he... Um, uh, he get, got people to give them their individual values coming into the workshop. And he contrasted then the aggregate of their individual values versus what people come up with in a group once they've deliberated this. And you get a different answer. And you systematically, across all of these different workshops that he ran, you get different answers when you get people to uh, deliberate. And in fact, it was generally a lower answer. It was pretty systematic across, uh, across the sample. Um, and for me, what was fascinating was he then, at the end of the workshop, asked people, right, you've got these two values. Uh, here's the one based on your individual value that you came into the workshop, and we've aggregated that. And now here's the one you came up to uh, based on the deliberation. Which is the one you would prefer to be used in a decision? And across the board, everyone said the deliberated value, the one that we came up with together as a group. And fundamentally, that's because they now understood the issue. They'd actually shaped each other's values. And uh, we don't simply have values intrinsically just there sitting in us to elicit. We have to understand them and debate them and research them and think about them. And that process now refines our understanding of, in fact, how valuable is this really compared to this or that? Or, you know, well, if I have to trade this off against education, then maybe the environment isn't that important to me. <laughs> For example. Uh, and you begin to realise, and the way that uh, Jasper designed these workshops, you begin to realise that actually when you really start to think deeply about this, that your values are not just how much money I put on something. Uh, that is a, a, an indicator of value. And what that is indicating is a set of much deeper things, transcendental values and beliefs that are actually driving now how much I'm willing to place on this. And when I understand those much deeper values and beliefs, I become much more comfortable with exactly why I'm doing what I'm doing in terms of where I put my money. Um, and um, 
Uh, what was interesting about this was uh, I was uh, on the same project as uh, as Jasper. So um, he was a PhD student when he started. So I was the principal investigator, but he was project manager. He was he led the proposal development. He led the actual project. Uh, I was much more figurehead uh, than anything else. But we were there in uh, the conferences, the meetings, um, uh, managing our team of twenty people. Uh, great. Uh, and so what I witnessed was the the backlash from the those who were on the current cutting edge. And people really didn't like this. And there was a, a particular professor who was kind of probably the most famous professor um, in environmental economics uh, at the time, maybe still is, I don't know, um, uh, who was, was deeply unimpressed. And, and he basically said, there is no such thing uh, as shared values, uh, at least the way in which you're describing them. It just simply doesn't exist. Um, and so Jasper and him had many deep and meaningful conversations that I will confess went over my head <laughs> as they tried to argue this thing out. Um, and, uh, and the fascinating thing is now wind this on seven eight years, I can't remember how long ago this is, and that same economics professor is now recruiting people to his research group who have skills and experience working in Jasper's technique, and he's come round, as have the majority of other uh, uh, research teams in this in this discipline. Uh, and it's not that they've thrown out their own methods, um, but they're now acknowledging that there are alternative methods that can be used. And again, interestingly, uh, the only objective measure I've got of um, is this paradigm shifting or not, did that work as a technique, uh, is uh, these internal reviews that we're all going through in the UK at the moment. And Jasper's um, work has been evaluated. And I'm gonna, I can't say which, which universities, there's multiple universities on these papers, but it's been evaluated by one university, by a group of uh, economics people, environmental economics people, as being four-star, uh, that paradigm shifting paper yet. Yeah. According to this group of people, and who knows if others will agree, um, and I know that another group put it in, and they didn't agree, uh, a group of agricultural scientists who thought, eh, yeah, it's not even classifiable, it's, it's, it's the opposite end of the spectrum. But to those in that discipline, this was viewed as paradigm shifting, uh, at least those who evaluated that paper at that time. So... Uh, the idea of jumping off the sh off the cliff to then be able to reevaluate, and that then leads me to the final of these three elements, which is moving beyond even the certainty of identity. And one of the reasons that Jasper was able to do this was that Jasper came to economics as an environmental scientist. That was his original training, and he spent years and years learning the trade of economics. Um, uh, out in the NGO world and then in his PhD and then beyond his PhD so that he was able to make a contribution um, to economics that could be paradigm shifting potentially. But, uh, but he did so from a position where he wasn't entrapped by the assumptions and the norms and the strong kind of pull of all of his peers to remain on that cutting edge. He was able to undermine, to kind of dig out some of the assumptions and collapse parts of that cliff that was the, the cutting edge and suggest that, you know what, there's something over here, guys, that is worth, uh, is worth looking at. 
Now, last week I talked about uh, labels and uh, and the fact that we have more identities than we often think about. And I hope that you've done some thinking between this week and last week because uh, in that place now where you've done that thinking, well, clearly, if I have a very fixed identity then that can constrain my thinking. People like me, people like this, people like us do things in a certain way. And that's maybe not an explicit thing, but implicitly there is that assumption that, well, I wouldn't even go there because there is this taboo over those kinds of approaches. So I'm a qualitative researcher. I wouldn't do quantitatively. I'm a quantitative researcher. I'm a modeler. Why would I mess around with qualitative stuff or whatever? Yeah, there are these implicit biases and assumptions that means that you just even, you just don't even think about going to certain places because of the identities that you've been given. Uh, So what about even uh, going to the level of uh, an identity based around evidence? So I do evidence-based work. What I do in terms of the impact of my research is based on evidence, and I'm all about creating the most rigorous evidence base possible for our discipline to build on. Uh, but then ask, well, what is evidence if it is not based on rigorous new knowledge? Uh, and now what is knowledge? And all of a sudden I realise that I may well be able to interrogate some of the assumptions that I've made about what constitutes valid knowledge and hence what constitutes valid evidence if I now take a more subjectivist, uh, relativist approach to this now as lines of argument, perhaps, that are rigorous, yes, that are internally consistent, uh, that are triangulated, etc., etc., but that uh, may or may not be the one right universal answer. There may well be a number of alternative valid lines of argument that some people would, let's say, are irrefutable lines of evidence that you may or may not want to listen to based on the assumptions that those different people make, their sample, their, uh, the timeline over which they did their studies, etc., etc. Um, so whether this is uh, your, your discipline, whether this is your, um, your way of understanding the world or what knowledge is or what evidence is, uh, whether it's just other assumptions that you take on board of the, the ways that people in your discipline do things or don't do things, can you move beyond the certainty of identity? And that, for me, is not just relabeling yourself as something else now and constantly relabeling, relabeling, relabeling. As I said last week, this is about, if possible, moving beyond even integrating identities to transcending those labels to say, you know what, I'm comfortable not being pigeonholed. I'm comfortable being flexible to be multiple identities all at the same time and to flexibly adapt between them as the circumstances demand, but in a way which is still entirely ethical and authentic as me. Now I'm going to conclude this by uh, by having a, a look at some of the the, the stuff that, that I've been drawing on and the authors I've been reading have been drawing on from Keats. This is from one of his letters. Um, and uh, my conclusion is to use his metaphor rather than my metaphor of the cliff here, which is a metaphor of rooms. And so he says, I compare human life to a large mansion of many apartments, two of which I can only describe, the doors of the rest being as yet shut upon me. The first we step into we call the infant or thoughtless chamber, in which we remain as long as we do not think. But our length, imperceptibly impelled by the awakening of the thinking principle, within us, 
we no sooner get into the second chamber, which I shall call the chamber of maiden thought, than we become intoxicated with the light and the atmosphere. We see nothing but pleasant wonders, and think of delaying there ever in delight. However, among the effects this breathing is farther of, is that tremendous one of sharpening one's vision into the heart and nature of man, of convincing one's nerves that the world is full of misery and heartbreak, pain, sickness and oppression, whereby this chamber of maiden thought becomes gradually darkened, and at the same time on all sides of it many doors are set open. But all dark, all leading to dark passages, we see not the balance of good and evil. We are in a mist. So we've jumped off the cliff. We've become comfortable in that darkness, that uncertainty. We are now in this place where we're reevaluating that cutting edge. We have uh, moved, I would argue, then from now this this first room that he talks about, and we're now moving into a second room because uh, at that certain point, eventually, perhaps, uh, that idea occurs to us. Uh, that thought, that insight, maybe that is what's wrong with everything that's gone before. Maybe that is the answer, uh, the new approach that will unlock all of this stuff. And at that point, we've entered this chamber of maiden thought, the new thought, the new idea, and it's intoxicating. Wow, no way, this is it. This is my eureka moment. Amazing. Incredible. Uh, and, uh, and, and so where do we go from there? Um, uh, and for some of us, it's trumpeting it from the rooftops. Yay, we've done this. We've, we've got the answer. And instantly we get shot down in flames from everyone on that cutting edge who sees all of the flaws and the challenges. Uh, and for others, we just sit on it and think about it a bit longer and think, ah, oh, yeah, but what about that? And you know what? It wouldn't work because of those things. And ha, huh, okay, maybe this isn't quite as good. Uh, and now, yeah, I've still got that idea, but now I'm holding with the light of that idea, the darkness of the doubt that, you know what, this is, this is rubbish, this is stupid. If I were to ever put this out, if I were to ever try this, I'd get shot down in flames, and quite rightly so, because it doesn't quite work yet. And so there's this idea that, that very quickly uh, it, you descend into this fog, this mist of uncertainty that, you know what, I thought I'd got there, but actually I never uh, have the bravery, the courage to take that new idea and to do anything with it. And the suggestion here now is that we have to hold on to what is good and to what is problematic and flawed and dark about this and now start to experiment start to test, to build our research proposals, to collect the evidence, to just go and talk to our supervisor, if you're a PhD student, to go and talk uh, to our colleagues or present at a conference or something just to get some feedback on this idea, knowing that I'm going to get shot down in flames, but knowing that actually what that will do is it will just simply deepen the darkness and the mystery of that place of uncertainty on knowing. And you know what? I've already got to a place where I'm comfortable with this and there is no fear that that holds for me. So I'm able now to go into the, the dragon's den, the lion's pit, whatever it is, and put my ideas out there and explore them. And now, over time, yeah, here are the answers. So uh, I've got a couple of, of papers like this. Uh, I've um, 
I've got one that I'm working on at the moment on impact culture, and I designed this study uh, 18 months ago. Um, and I thought, wow, this is amazing. We're going to come up with this incredible theory, and uh, I want to test these ideas. I got so excited. But instantly I thought, you know what, I need to test this. I can't just put this out there. And so I'm now designing a study, and I'm bringing in people from different disciplines who I think might be able to test these ideas in different ways. And instantly they point out all of the flaws. And I sat on that paper for an entire year because I knew the flaws were far too deep, the assumptions far too big. This was not credible. I couldn't go anywhere with it. And after a year of gestation of, yeah, there's still that idea there, but it's not going to work like that. Eventually, I hit across an idea that, you know what, maybe I could take it that way. And it was based on just meeting a psychologist in a training um, who I talked to about the idea. And they said, yeah, maybe if you tried it like this. And so I now got her and another psychologist involved put my ideas out there. And yeah, this is still not right, Mark. This is not going to work. This is nowhere near the cutting edge in, in psychology. But what about this? And what about that? And we're now at the point where we've got a research proposal that I think is on that cutting edge. Um, now, I'm going to be self-funding this through uh, Fast Track Impact in terms of getting the staff I need to collect the data. One of the pleasures of being a social scientist, you can do research fairly um, uh, cost-effectively. Uh, and so I'm going to do this, and uh, and you will get the results at a certain point sometime next year, uh, once I eventually manage to get this project done. Uh, the paper may, in fact, be led by a psychologist, not me. Uh, because for me, it's about the, the idea, it's about the team, it's not about having my name in lights with this. Uh, it's about being able now to see that there was indeed some merit in that idea. Uh, but I, I didn't allow the fog to descend, the fear to come in and to just abandon the idea. And I think that's the problem. Even when we've gone through the, all of those three steps and we eventually, in that space of uncertainty, come up with that idea, uh, we instantly critique it or get critiqued and we run tail between our legs back to that cutting edge, to that place of safety. Can you be comfortable enough with uncertainty that you will stay with those ideas for the long haul until you find a way to make them work or find a way to transcend that idea to the next idea that ultimately is the idea that comes up with the significant and original enough contribution to really shift things forward? Thank you.